Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Welcome to a special edition of The Path and the Practice. This show is a little bit different from my typical episode in that instead of bringing a Foley lawyer on to talk about their life leading up to law school and then to talk about their practice, I have brought back Larry Perlman, who now holds the title of having been the most frequent guest on this show. So Larry has his own episode, brought him back to interview me for my episode, and now I'm bringing him on so we could have a candid discussion of advice to new attorneys. So first things first, for those of you who haven't heard of the earlier episodes with Larry, let me tell you a bit about him, which is that Larry is an employment partner out of Foley's Miami office. He also is the litigation department's training chair, the Miami office's hiring partner, and a member of the firm's recruiting committee. Additionally, within Foley, Larry holds the claim to fame of having been an internal medicine doctor before going to law school. That's right. He's actually Dr. Larry Perlman. So I bring Larry on so that we can explore the things that we wish we knew when we were junior associates and also to share and highlight some of the things that we see first-year associates struggle with that we would love to help them avoid. A couple of the big themes that we talk about are the differences between being a law student and being a practicing attorney. Larry also does a great job at explaining really the business model and our customer service orientation as a professional services firm. And we also get into the nitty-gritty. I will admit, I talk way too much and harp on timekeeping. So if you start to roll your eyes and say, Alexis, I get it, just know we will move on from that topic, but it is that important to me. But we spend a lot of time actually talking about communication, how to communicate in a law firm in the terms of managing your assignments and in terms of being responsive to various inquiries that you'll get as you are learning how to practice. Before I cut to the show, I will give the disclaimer that this is not the end-all be-all advice. There is so much more to learn. And there's a lot of things that are important that we simply didn't have time to say. So for example, we obviously expect that you'll also always be following your ethical obligations as an attorney. Additionally, whether you be at Foley or another firm and you get advice either through your professional development programs or through people you're working with that in some way is counter to what we said, please listen to what is told to you in that context. I don't want any emails saying how something didn't go the right way because I didn't do what the partner said and said I did what you said, Alexis, or what Larry said. We absolutely don't want that as well. Please use your judgment. But with that being said, I think this episode is packed with advice that's really applicable and hopefully helps ease that transition into being a new attorney. Larry Perlman, welcome back to the podcast. Before we started, I was telling you how you're the most frequent guest I've had on the show. This is now your third appearance because I had your podcast, which was episode 15, which I'll say words about in a moment. You interviewed me for my podcast, which I think is episode 56. And here we are at episode 90 something. I have you back to talk about advice to new associates. But before we do, do your like super quick professional introduction, like your name, office, practice area, all that stuff. Well, I'm going to do that in a second. But since this is my third time on the podcast and it's a record, I want to know if you have the swag, right? Like the podcast t-shirt and mug and everything. And when it comes, I'm first in line, right? Yes, I do need that. I recently met a new lateral to Foley who said he'd listened to like 20 or 30 episodes. And I was like, if I had merchandise, I would send it to you. I just don't have any yet. But I'm sorry I said that, Larry. I probably should have promised it to you first. Okay, well, no hard feelings. (laughs) But um, to answer your question, and my name's Larry Perlman. I am a partner in the Miami office of Foley. I am in the labor and employment practice group. I've been with Foley. I was a summer associate in 2006 or so. I might be off a year. It's 2007, but that's okay. Well, thank you for that. See, we have interviewed several times together. And I have been with the firm my entire professional career as an attorney. Again, I focus on labor and employment. That's in our litigation department. I do a good deal of litigation. I also do a good deal of counseling, day-to-day advice, problem prevention with all sorts of clients. 
as we've talked about on my first podcast, and as you know, Alexis, this is a second career for me. I was a practicing internal medicine physician before I became a labor employment attorney. And as a result, I do tend to, although I represent a broad variety of clients, I tend to have a particular focus on healthcare and within healthcare, telemedicine as a discipline. I have taken on a number of roles formally and informally within the firm. And in particular, uh, with respect to associates and training, I am the litigation department's training chair. I've been in that role uh, since earlier this year. I'm also the Miami office hiring partner, and I'm a member of the firm's recruiting committee. And again, I'm a longtime podcast listener and happy participant. That's very important. And one of the early participants when this was just a crazy idea I had. But those things you listed, um, being on the hiring committee, being hiring partner for Miami, being training partner for litigation, those are all things that have happened since you were on the show, which I think at this point is closing in on two years ago, which is pretty crazy. So that's one of the reasons, or actually the main reason I have you here that, and if listeners can't tell, Larry and I are friends. We go way back. We went to law school together. I'm, I'm sitting here right now probably because of Larry, because he's like, Alexis, you should apply for this director of diversity thing at the firm. Whole different discussion. But wanted to bring you on to do something a little different, which is we've just had our new class of first year start. I think there's around 60-something associates. Also, we get people who don't work at Foley listening to this, new junior attorneys at other firms, as well as law students. So I wanted to bring you on just to have an informal talk about advice to new lawyers. I know you've recently thought quite a bit about this because we were together down in Dallas where we brought all of our new associates together for our new associate orientation. And one of your things was at least advice to those in the litigation department. So I want to take some time today and see what we can do to globalize it and talk about that tremendous ramp up that new lawyers have. And I will just give a little bit of, I don't know if it's an apology to the corporate lawyers, because Larry and I are both, I'm a former litigator, obviously I haven't practiced in a long time. Larry is a mix. He does a lot of counseling. He does a lot of other stuff, but we're not deal lawyers. Although Larry, I know you get brought into deals. So some of our stuff may skew a little bit litigation focused, but I think we're capable of just talking through general advice to new attorneys that hopefully can help ease this transition. Yeah. I think we're more than capable of doing that. Right. And if there's something we don't cover that you think is more as a listener aligned toward deal work and you need more advice, just reach out to me. I'll get you help. Yep. And actually, let's say it this way. There's things we're guaranteed not to cover. This is not your end-all, be-all list of how to be a new lawyer. But I think some of the things we're going to talk about will be super helpful. So where should we start, Larry? Where did you start when you were orienting our new associates? So I was giving a presentation on a couple of defined topics that ended up broad. And I was giving a presentation on training and what we do in the litigation department. And I was giving a presentation also on some of the more functional things we do as attorneys, namely timekeeping. When I gave that presentation, and I wish we had a visual here, I started off with a slide of some apples on this branch in, I don't want to say grassy knoll because we were in Dallas. It was a grassy like meadow, right? And it's a tree with apples. And I asked everyone, what are we looking at here? And nobody knew the answer, nor would anyone have, because you know it was my own mind coming up with this. But what it was, I googled low-hanging fruit pictures, and I found a picture of some apples hanging really close to the ground, and that honestly was the kickoff for a lot of what I believe matters and is important in terms of succeeding as a new associate, regardless of what department you're in. And it's low-hanging fruit because the takeaway was, put in your time, people. That's the low-hanging fruit. And maybe there's been a collective eye roll of like, oh, come on, what a terrible, terrible joke. But it is true. So I think one of the first things, wherever you practice, if you are at a large law firm, you are asked to put in your time. Put in your time. Now, this is a little bit daunting when you first start. As I recall, when I first started billing, I found it really difficult, frankly, to bill a day's worth of time, whether it be because I was still ramping up or even if I had work to do, I just wasn't that good at capturing my time. So maybe there's two parts to this, Larry. There's just the fact that you're a new lawyer. It's going to take you a second to be good at this. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about why it's so important to actually put in your time. But what do you say to the person who's just like, I don't even know how to build time. When will I be able to do this comfortably? I would say 
a couple of things. And I want to backtrack a bit. My low-hanging fruit analogy, it works for almost everything you do as a new lawyer, because here's what my intent is. Nobody expects that you're going to be, and I remember my mentor when I started, gave me this speech and used Clarence Darrow as the example, right? He said, Perlman, nobody expects you to be Clarence Darrow on day one. If you were, you wouldn't be an associate. You wouldn't have had to go to law school even. You wouldn't go through all this. You'd be there sitting in the corner office right now. You'd be running all the cases. And one day, I think you will be. That, that was nice of him to say. But right now, we know that you haven't had years and years of experience. And that's key. It is critical to realize you're going to not know lots of things. It's going to feel like you don't know everything, right? There are substantive points of law that you're not going to think of because you've never encountered them before. There are arguments that you just don't have the experience to make. There are diligence issues if you're working in M&A that you may not consider or look into. Everyone knows that. So the shift is what is expected and what can you do? And that's when I will answer your question about timekeeping in a moment. No, you don't need to. We're going to go back in a second, but I love that you backed me up and reiterated this. I almost want to just repeat what you said again, and then tell the listeners to bookmark it and listen to it when you're having that. I've always been a high achiever. I did really well all my life. I'm used to knowing what's going on to be reminded of exactly what Larry said. So just, you know, go back and listen to this if you need to. I won't actually have it repeated, but I'm so glad you stopped me. Okay. Well then good. I have free reign. I will stop you lots of times. So the point is this, what's expected is really a couple of things. It's a we expect and know that you are really smart. And how do we know that? Because I'm on the recruiting committee and we don't make mistakes, right? No, I mean, but... Larry says, because I hired you and I decided you're smart. No, I'm just kidding. That's the joke part. But, you know, the real kernel of truth there is everyone who's a new associate or a medium associate, there's been a thorough evaluation. And when you're coming in as a brand new lawyer, you succeeded at school. You did what you needed to do. You went to good schools. You got good grades. And that doesn't happen unless you're smart and intelligent and able to process complex legal concepts and arguments. We know you know how to do that. And so we expect you're smart. That's totally different from having tons and tons of experience. But the second expectation is really, it's the same expectation that goes if you're working at a large law firm, working at a pizzeria, working as a physician, which I was, and it's that you'd be a good worker who gets the job done and is responsive and responsible. That's not unique to being a lawyer at a big law firm or a medium law firm or a small law firm or anything else. Wow, there's a couple of things. I feel like you took me back and went to almost the deeper discussion of like, first of all, you are enough, which I think is really important for us to tell the first years because there can be a bit of an identity crisis when you're just used to knowing what's going on and you don't. But now I sense that we're getting into some of the more tactical. I already raised timekeeping. I'm leaving them hanging. We will get back to that. But I think figuring out how to build time, knowing why it's important, but also knowing what is expected of you in terms of responsiveness, which by the way, can vary by your organization. But maybe let's talk about timekeeping and let's go to responsiveness and then let's go to all the other advice that you likely have. So take me back to the timekeeping thing that I opened five minutes ago or whatever it was. I'm going to take you back to timekeeping. I'm going to take it as I do. You're used to me. I'm going to take it even a bit further back with some general thoughts, but it will all tie together. I promise. In thinking about what's expected and what we're doing. To me, and I don't think this is unique to me, there's a fundamental difference between being a successful law student and being a successful attorney. And that difference has to do with the goal. It's inherent. It has to do with the goals of school and the goals of being a business where we serve clients. I'll call them customers for a reason. Not going to call them customers necessarily when I'm speaking to our clients, but for these purposes, it's the same relationship. In school, school is an inward-facing endeavor. And what I mean is, if I'm taking torts, I was taking torts, you sat next to me. When I'm taking torts, I have a torts final coming up, I get a grade. If I get an A, I get an A. That's wonderful. My family may be proud of me. That might be a good, that probably is a good thing because I'm going to pass through law school and get a job. But at the end of the day, I get an A, a B, or a D. It doesn't affect the professor one way or another. I have a legal writing class. Remember, we were in legal writing together with Professor Tonner at the University of Michigan, right? 
we had a legal writing class and we had a draft motion to compel. It was on a case involving hippotherapy, which is the use of horses for certain therapeutic reasons for medical conditions. And why do I remember it was the hippotherapy motion to compel? Because I probably spent 80 hours on that motion to compel because I wanted a really good grade. And I I studied and I showed it to people and I drafted and I redrafted and I probably annoyed you showing you that you know, five-page motion to compel. I got an A. I did really well. But here's the kicker. If I spent 80 hours on a very simple motion to compel at Foley or at any law firm, you don't get graded, but I would not get the equivalent of an A. I would get this like a gassed look. It's and it would be either from the partner I'm working for as new associate or the client saying, oh my gosh, what have you done, Perlman? This is something that should take four hours. And if I come back and say, yes, but this is the best motion to compel that has ever been drafted, come back and say, yes, but you've just spent twice the amount of money than the entire case is valued at. And so I don't think I got the A if I do that when I show up as an attorney. And that distinction is the basis for everything. Because instead of that inward focus of I need to get an A, an A plus, you need to get an A or A plus, but what that means is going to be different. It's different. And at heart, you're going to do a good job. You're smart. All of you, I have no doubt. At heart, though, we are in a customer service business. Those customers are clients and they're buying something. What they're buying is our time. They're literally buying, and this may be scary, right? They're buying my brain in increments of tens of an hour, right? Yep. So I'm giving a bill at the end. That's what timekeeping is. It's okay. We hired Foley and Lardner. We have all these attorneys. Larry's on the team. I expect I'm going to get charged for some time that Larry did stuff. That's what the relationship is. We're going to talk a little bit more. But that's the basis of everything is we are doing stuff. We're doing really important and sophisticated and good stuff. Ultimately, though, we're in a restaurant. It's conceptually the same thing. And at the end of every month, our clients, they get that check, right? And it's there. You know, it might be a little business card and a nice thing we send along with it and a mint. I don't know. But they get a check and it says what they ordered, basically, and what they're paying for. What it costs. They get the bill. Yep. Yes. Although I think before you put a little bit of anxiety, because I've run into associates who sometimes will write down their time when, and I'm jumping ahead, so might not know what that means. But if you spent 15 hours doing something and you as the associate independently decided it should have taken six and only write down six, Larry didn't give that example to frighten you about time. But truly, I think showing the stakeholders, which is it's not about just you anymore as it was in law school. You're working in a team environment, particularly as a junior attorney. There is a partner around at the very least, if not a mid-level associate or senior counsel. And then you have this client. And I think it is a lot of things with legal practice really can come down to empathy And so when associates don't put down their time, there's a couple things. That partner is managing the spend on whatever you're working on. That client wants to see the time. Also, it can flag for someone if you are kind of spinning your wheels, they can start seeing it. And we are actually in the midst of review season right now. And we were talking to the um, new attorneys about how to go through the review season. And at Foley, we're a firm where you can access your own financial metrics pretty much whenever you want. But I know a lot of our associates won't do that. And as a first year, I'm not saying to go look all the time. I'm not saying to obsess about it. But when you don't put in your time, that's the only thing I know about you. (laughs) because a lot of people are putting it in daily or weekly. So you definitely don't want to be that person who does it once a month because we can literally, and we meaning me, myself included, who looks at the financial metrics and where people are in the firm, you can see what day it is and see this person has entered no time. And that will be one thing partners will talk about you. They will discuss you for failing to put in your time. And I'm really trying not to give a complex to people who are already overly type A, but back to the low-hanging fruit, back to the something that's easy to manage. Please do it. It really can impact things. And the bottom line is it's not hard. That question of ramping up, learning to be a lawyer, that's trickier. But the just literally putting something in the system to capture what you've done for the last day, last week... Hopefully you're not that person trying to recreate their time at the end of the month. Really isn't hard. So please just put in your time. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with what you just mentioned, Alexis, right? I certainly don't want to turn this into an hour just on timekeeping, but it's a great example for other issues, right? Which is why I bring up the relationship and the fact that 
we have paying customers. With respect to, and let's dive into it, a couple of the time things you say, A, I, I just couldn't echo it more. Um, the fact that having sat on countless associate reviews, it's one of those things where the expectation is there are certain things you do, put in time, and that's the low-hanging fruit part. It's, I may know nothing about the law. Uh, you're supposed to say, no, Larry, of course you do. Larry, you know all the things about the law. What do you I, mean? <laughs> I, I may know nothing, right? But I could put in what I did yesterday. So I don't want to get some negative attributed to me for something that's really easy to do and that I don't even need to know much to do. Yes. Well, and it cuts to the business of the firm, like you said. And I think what happens is attorneys will be like, I'm too busy. You're too busy to engage in our actual business model. I heard our CFO describe a law firm as a simple cash-based business. And obviously it's a bit more complex than that. But at the end of the day, things that cut to how we are able to do business, please just enter your time. And I've said, I've said it like 18 times, but I know a lot of attorneys who don't seem to get it. So I said it again for them. I use everything as the restaurant example. And I'm going to give a few other hints about putting in time, a few other recommendations, but here's why it's important. We send bills out every month. If I'm late and I put in time next month, so right now we just finished October, right? Let's say I was late. I didn't put in all my time in October. I put something in November. Client gets the bill for October. They see all this work. But then because I was late, I put time in November. So on their November bill, they get this extra several thousand dollar charge. That's no different conceptually than if you go to a restaurant, they give you the bill, you come back next time, you order a bunch of other stuff, and then they add on and they go, hey, remember last month when you were here? You ordered a cheesecake. We forgot to charge you for it. And that bottle of champagne, right? That's a problem. (laughs) And I belabor it because it's just driving home why it's so important. You bring up the flip side, and rightly so, which is, oh my gosh, this could get really complicated, and there's all sorts of reasons for anxiety here. And one of the things you bring up is this tendency where sometimes people say, you know what, I'm just going to discount my time. I'm not going to put what I did. There are myriad problems with doing that. And I'll give a few, and I'm not going to get all of them because I don't even remember all of them, but I completely understand the motivation. But here's the problem, and this goes into other things. We attorneys, if you haven't already experienced this, you will within the next week or two. We notoriously underestimate how difficult work we give you is. I don't think I ever was an associate where I did not get an assignment where they said, this should be simple. Yep, should take you about 90 minutes. <laughs> and I, I remember that. So I give assignments and I say, this should be simple, but I will add, of course, it probably won't be because it never works out that way. But here, I really think this should be simple. This should take three hours. What happens is, let's say I'm wrong and it's going to it take six hours or nine hours. The best thing to do is to talk to me, talk to the assigning attorney when you're getting close to two or three hours and tell me, look, you know, this is taking a lot longer than I thought. Here's why. What should we do? That's by far the best way to do it. And the theme we'll talk about the next half hour, communication, 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 number one, two, three, four, five, six of how to succeed. But let's say you didn't, or let's say it was on me and you tried telling me and I didn't get back to you, which that's wrong of me if I don't, or let's say there was some reason that you ended up doing the six hours of work. The choices are, I'm going to make believe I only did three hours of work and not put in the other three, or I'm going to put in all the time and then I'm going to have this talk with Larry where he's going to say, oh, you know, I wish you had told me at three hours, but let's deal with it. The reason it's so important to put in all the time is if I don't know there's a problem. So let's say you put in the three hours, you don't come talk to me. I have no idea it took six. So what's going to happen next time is I'm going to say, this is awesome. I said it's going to take three hours. It only took 2.8 hours. I'm going to pat myself in the back and say, I must be fantastic at figuring out how much this type of task takes. And then I'm going to give you three hours in the future. And then we're stuck in this cycle where you keep on undercounting your time, which is not good, right? Or I'm going to pay it forward in a bad way to all your peers and say, well, Alexis did it in three hours. This seems like a three-hour project. Yes, there's all sorts of ramifications, not to mention just, you know, your billable rate as a more junior lawyer reflects that you're not going to be as efficient. 
leave that decision-making to the billing partner who very well may say, oh, he did it in six. That was longer than I thought, but did a great job. It was so reasonable. It was six. It wasn't 600. <laughs> and things get worked out, but you really do yourself a disservice. And what happens is you will you can really burn out that way if you routinely are working more than the time you are capturing and also back to the capture all your time and let others figure it out while communicating with them, which I think actually Larry starts segueing us. And it's funny. So Larry and I were like, let's just jump on and chat. You know, ideally I would have had that perfect outline of all the things we need to hit in their order of importance. So really we're just kind of flowing here with what comes to mind. Timekeeping is really important. Maybe not the utmost thing, but something I think in a mix of that discussion about responsiveness, but as well as just that managing assignments is what I see us getting into when we talk about communication. So I'm looking at an article, actually, a friend of mine wrote years ago with advice to junior associates. And to summarize some of the things he says, so, you know, you've just started at a firm, Larry Perlman asks you to stop by his office because he needs you to work on something. Larry tells you what it is. He says it should take maybe three hours. Now, what do you do? So I think some best practices that you won't necessarily always live by, but can be great are one, Email Larry back and say, Larry, thank you so much for your time and explaining me that you wanted me to do X, Y, Z. Put the task in writing. What he asked you to do, put it in writing. That allows Larry to read it again and be like, yep, Alexis got it. Or Larry can go, is that really what I said? Because Alexis don't got it. (laughs) And he can now clarify. And we can spin on that a little bit. Then after that, find an example. This can be mind-blowing for a lot of new lawyers. Whatever you're working on is probably not the first time someone in the firm has done it. There is a strong chance that Larry has actually done that assignment before or had an associate who had. And I know you don't want to like just fish through your document management system, but if you look, you can probably find, and you'll hear funny stories, partners being like, yep, no one ever told me they'd written discovery requests before at this law firm. And so Larry laughed at me really hard when he saw my best guess at how to draft a discovery request and said, why? Actually, Daljeet gave this example during NAO. He said that he just like made up whatever the form was supposed to be. And the partner then was like, cool, we have precedent <laughs> you, can, you can pull from. And then also build in a little time before it's due to show somebody, hey, does this look like what a motion to compel should look like? Does this look like a term sheet or whatever it may be? I think one of the bigger points uh, that I have to mention is I love that example because there will be times you all get it wrong. And you still can become CEO of the firm, right? (laughs) And so obviously, Daljeet learned from that experience and there were lessons, but perfection is not going to happen for anyone. It's how we get to where we're going that's important and how we deal with each issue. So you were talking about getting an assignment, right? And kind of how Mm -hmm. to handle it. And you're talking about, well, don't reinvent the wheel. Critically important point, I keep on hearkening back to the client service aspect of this. Our clients are mostly sophisticated business people, in-house counsel, who know how things work. Many have come from large law firms. They expect that we do this. I think there's this notion, again, going back to, well, I was a student, and I want to show them that I came up with the best motion to compel, or I came up with the best common interest agreement, or whatever it may be. There's no need to do that. We have really, really good documents. We have good work product. We have 175 plus years of experience of really smart people who have come before us and have done these things. And of course, you're going to review and make sure that what you do is in in compliance with applicable current law and is updated. But the starting point should always be, has this been done before? So how do you Mm -hmm. get there? And again, There's no shame in that. That's what you should be doing. And we're lawyers, right? The whole legal profession in a lot of ways is precedential. It's based on what has been done before. So like you said, don't use an old brief with old case law, some of which has been overturned. That is not what we mean. But often you don't need to be looking at a blank word document. There's usually some sort of guidance. And you can often ask the person... Larry, thank you for that assignment. By chance, have you worked on a version of this? Do you have a template of this that you've liked? Exactly. That's your preference. So that's the segue. And I give all these analogies to working in retail, working in a restaurant. And one of the differences with what you do as a new law associate that's different in general from those contexts is typically you work in a restaurant, you have one boss. You know who your boss is. Typically, with some exceptions, 
the average law firm associate has many, many, many de facto bosses. We don't use that term, but you have more senior associates who are assigning you work. You have senior counsel who are, you have partners who are, as you go through, you have the real bosses who are the clients who are assigning work and everyone's different. So what works for Alexis, you know, and it's incredibly frustrating. You, get, you hand in something to Alexis and you love it because it's something that, um, you know, you did for me before. And I thought it was just great work product. You hand it into Alexis and Alexis goes, hmm, you drafted that document that way. Who told you to do that? That's not the way I like having it done. And then you just want to tear your hair out and you're unbelievably frustrated. If you haven't been there, it's something that's inherent to having the opportunity to do work for many different people. And so one of the key things, and you touched on it, Alexis, is A, just asking directly. I'm giving work. It is fine. I will welcome it. I will be happy if you say, hey, you know, do you have an example? Was there a case? Let's say you don't have that opportunity because I just called you from an airport and gave you, I'm so sorry, I can't get in great depth and they're about to board and the flight attendant's giving me a really nasty look for being on the phone with you, but I need this document drafted, right? And I hang up. Hopefully I then write to you later and give you those instructions, but you need to do it. One of the best favors you can do for yourself as a beginning and even as you advance through your career is figure out who works with who. That is invaluable yep. information. So you say, boy, I'm working with Larry. I'm going to try to figure out what associates work with Larry who are a little more senior. So I know what he's looking for, what his preferences are. And there are ways to do it. One way is if it's, you know, if you're in my office and you just know people and you, you may already know, or you may know from your summer associate um, time who works with me. You may ask someone else who say, you know, I, I haven't worked with Larry, but who's the associate or, you know, more senior. Mm -hmm. Who else has? There are other things you could do, though. And this is an appropriate use of resources. You look up my name. You look up on NetDocs the title of the type of document. And that gives you two things, right? It gives you examples. But very often, look in NetDocs at the last modified by. You'll see who's been in that document. Again, that is why we have NetDocs. That's why we have And at Foley, NetDocs is our document management system. Thank you. For those who yeah. are, all law firms have some way that's not just saving to your local PC or PC laptop of managing documents. All law firms have something. So you look and you say, boy, in the last six months, I, I see there are a number of documents. I'm just going to give names like, well, MC Cravat has done a bunch of work, you know, looks like on Larry's documents or Brooke Ballinger in Dallas or Leisha O'Connor in Detroit or whoever it may be, right? And you see these names that are affiliated with me. I've done this. It is fine to say, hey, you know, I'm a new associate. I, you know, I, I just joined in the New York office. I see that hey, I'm doing something for Larry. I might be wrong, but I see you've done a lot of work. Could I pick your brain for a few minutes? That yep. is invaluable and intel. People like that. Usually the person you're reaching out to is like, oh, Alexis, I saw you started in our group. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I call you in 30 minutes or can you talk tomorrow or whatever it is? People usually really want to help. And that is also just like, I think like a secret to the law firm universe of looking really good when you didn't get a lot of instruction and you come through anyway and it looks great because you knew who to ask, because you're a first year and you ask the fourth year, or you're a first year and you ask the sixth year. And also, Larry, when you were talking earlier about how as an associate, you have lots of bosses. I remember when I was still a litigator, I had no voice of my own when writing <laughs> because I would just write in the voice of whatever partner. Like I just learned to not have my own personal style when writing. I now, I since have developed one, but I think that's what you're getting at is you're learning how other people work. And I also hope this isn't so much the case at Foley, but I think there could be a fear that's like, well, Larry Perlman is frightening. I am not going to ask a curmudgeonly Larry Perlman what his templates look like because I am afraid of it. <laughs> and I hope that is not the case. But if you were and you shouldn't be, back to the hack you just gave. And also, I do just want to share because I'm on these partner calls, these review calls. Partners will talk about the curiosity and the questions that are asked. They will say, Larry or Alexis or whoever, she asks such good questions because it shows you're engaged. And often if you have a question and you know, you do want to be judicious, you don't just want to be stopping by every five minutes or peppering someone with 20 emails a day with questions, like be judicious about it. 
but it shows you're engaged and you care. So often that just running off, oh my God, I have to reinvent the wheel yourself. It sort of shows a lack of judgment and potentially a lack of curiosity and caring that at least at Foley and Lardner, our partners really, really like, because they, they start saying like, oh, you are in this with me and I can trust you. Okay. So what are we talking about next? What about responsiveness? Because I've seen it go either way. I've seen associates who maybe didn't realize what the expectations are in terms of, and actually I talk about the difference between responsive and available because they are not the same thing. But Larry, I haven't practiced in about seven years. So I don't know if those words mean anything to you, but I've found that partners can get a little persnickety when someone is not responsive, but they don't necessarily expect you to be always available because they know you're working on more than one thing, especially once you get ramped up. What's your experience with that? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up this point. I will tell you things have not changed in the seven-year period that you have you know, mentioned, at least in this context. And here's what this is all about. We work on large teams. Even when we have cases that are staffed pretty leanly, in many of our employment cases, it's me and an associate, maybe, as the primary attorneys. Even then, we have our staff, we have our assistants, we have our paralegals who are working. We have a slew of individuals over at the client who are coordinating with us. We may have in litigation and in, you know, in, in litigation and in business law and every discipline, we have other parties who have an interest, right? If you're working on a deal, certainly you have the whole team on the other side that's doing exactly what you're doing. And so a lot of what we do has to do with the fact that there are finite deadlines or goals and we have multiple people involved who are trying to get an answer or get a work product by that finite deadline for in litigation there's court deadline and it can be very misleading to think well that answer to the complaint is due on two weeks from tuesday that is true but before two weeks from tuesday you have to draft your version of the answer. You have to get it to me. I have to revise it. I then might have to send it to the client who's going to put in different, you know, um, take on it, or there might be information we need to get to the client. And Larry, can you just stop there for one moment? We send things to clients. I just think for me, when I first started, I almost, the client, particularly at a larger firm, can feel like a very academic pursuit. Like you forget that there is a client. And so I think someone says, oh, I know the complaint's due in two weeks. So we should have this timeline, but you don't realize what the client wants their role to be. And often, almost most of the time, it goes to the client a few days, at least, before something's getting filed with the court. Yeah. And this is all the notion of internal deadlines, right? And I think sometimes there's this tendency to say, well, I hate internal deadlines because they're not real. And, you know, I know, and they are very real because things don't happen the way they should if we don't all be very cognizant of deadlines and the fact that everyone's working on a multitude of different things. So to get back to your responsiveness, if I write to you today at noon and I say, Alexis, I have a new matter. We need an answer at two weeks from now. I can tell you more about it. Can you work with me on it? Some version of that. And you get back to me tomorrow and say, yeah, I can work with you on it, right? Well, that's good. That also means that I spent the past 24 hours being nervous, nervous. What if Alexis can't? What if um, Alexis says no? And then I have to find someone else. I lost a day. And there's this whole monopoly of people whose schedules are going to sort of snowball, you know, in terms of who needs to do what. And it may be fine because you get back to me tomorrow. But that, that whole 24 hours, I'm thinking, I hope I get a response. I hope we get a response. And to be honest, I'll probably be a pest and reach out to you again in an hour or two and say, hey, so can you do it? That's what we're talking about, responsiveness versus availability. Yeah. Well, that's a really great example. And also, if we were already on the same team, hey, Alexis, so-and-so just filed an amended complaint. Can you pull it? If I take until tomorrow to tell you I could pull it, or I actually pulled it, but I didn't tell you that I pulled it, all sorts of things, me responding timely, timely probably for a lot of people is going to be, you know, in a lot of law firms, that's actually going to be within minutes because it's during business hours. 
But it's certainly not a six or eight hour turnaround on me telling you that I can work on it. But I also might say, yes, Larry, I can pull it. I'm actually tied up at a client meeting for the rest of the afternoon and can get you a draft of it tomorrow. I was responsive to him, even though I was not available to immediately provide the summary of the new filing. And so I think sometimes associates will tend to wait until they have the work product or can really dig in instead of kind of doing the like on it, got it, we'll get back to you. Just because I think for the partner, just them knowing that you saw their email and you are going to take actions in response to it, you know, relevant to whatever time frame. But I have seen associates either just not understand that email is something they should check more than a couple times a day, which I know sounds bananas to those folks who are sort of compulsive email checkers who honestly may need to institute a little bit more of a boundary so they can get a little more work done (laughs) in between checking emails. But just that same thing, occasionally, depending on the firm, depending on the nature of the work, you may have weekend stuff going on. You may see that email from Larry because something happened, you know, it's a crunch time, it is Saturday at 10 a.m., it may be the equivalent of Larry saw this, can start working on this today at five o'clock. So Larry knows, Larry feels good versus just not responding to him until five o'clock. And that can be a difference. And it's all about communication, right? Because the hypothetical you, you give, it's a wonderful answer, right? It's like, got your email. I can start this later this afternoon because I'm tied up in something. Please let me know if that's okay. And the way I'm going to respond is A, I'm really happy Alexis wrote back. And it's either then going to be, sure, later this afternoon is great. I'm going to let the other attorneys know. I'm going to let the client know. We will have something to you by whenever. And then you got to follow through. Absolutely. Got to follow through. Or I say, you know, thank you so much for letting me know. Unfortunately, this one, we, we need to get it much quicker. So no problem at all. But I'm going to ask uh, whoever else it may be. That is not a badge of shame. That That is not doing anything wrong. That's how we work together as a team, right? We know who's available, who's not available. And that's all it is. So it's the responding. And believe me, in my current role, I do this multiple times a day. I, you know, I'm sitting and sometimes I have to apologize for being rude while I'm in another meeting. And I say, you know, I just have something I have to answer. I'm sorry. And I write to the client all the time and say, received your message. I'm in a meeting right now, I will be able to call you in an hour, two hours, two and a half hours, whatever it is. That's what 99% of people want is just, I saw it, I'm on it, I'll get back to you. That's the key. Yep. Versus when you first started a law firm, because you read that while you were standing at a grocery store. (laughs) And oh my gosh, Larry emailed me. Oh my God, oh my God, I'm at the grocery store. Okay, I'm not going to respond until I'm back home and I'll be back home in two hours and I'll respond when I'm in front of my computer. And then I can do whatever he needs. I understand how that sounded like a really good idea, <laughs> but you know, assuming you weren't in the midst of driving, you're not going to endanger yourself to back to the acknowledge it, tell them your time frame, and you can work together. And so, Larry, I know we only have maybe like seven to ten minutes or so left together. One of the big things I wanted to tackle is actually email etiquette in a law firm. I'm going to say some things. I want to get your response. Like I said, I think a lot of being a successful associate comes back to your empathy for others. Mistakes I see associates make can be really verbose, really long emails to partners that don't get to the point of whatever it is they have going on. So Larry, I did that assignment for you. I have lots of questions. And instead of like really organizing my thoughts, I sort of just stream of consciousness, wrote down all the things I'm encountering. It's a solid 800 words. What I've found is that is not the most empathetic way of communicating and really taking a moment to decide if you could summarize whatever's going on at the top so that Larry can answer yes or no, or he could say, actually, let's stop by or make this a phone call, but really put some thought into the structure of your emails. It goes back to the whole, for junior associates, the partners really are your clients. Partners have to be similarly thoughtful for when they engage with clients. But do you have any tips on that? Like, What's the best way just to communicate with you in general? So emails that are single spaced and like hundreds of lines and they come at those are tough those are tough to read they're tough to intake and if i see an email like that i know i'm gonna have to set aside a good portion of time that i might not have to totally digest this this all harkens back to email etiquette is all everything's about communication we email people as a way of communicating about work that we're doing or that we've done And just like you'd communicate verbally, and one of the things you said is what's the best way, right? And in your hypothetical, it might be best to say, you know, to write, 
Dear Alexis, I've been doing research into this issue. It has gotten more complicated than anticipated. I'm happy to put together an email outlining this, but it may be more efficient to talk. Can I put some time in your calendar? Can we stop by? That's one way of doing it. Another thing that is I like to do in emails, I like to see it. It's something I do. I will put in the subject line. I realize that everyone, we all get dozens and dozens and dozens of emails an hour. Forget about a day. If I'm sending you an email on a Saturday, sometimes I'm sending it because I want you to look at it now. More often than not, I'm sending it because I went into work on Saturday. I was thinking about something and I'm like, I want to get this out to Alexis. I will put in the subject line in parentheses, FYI, no need to address until Monday. That's a good thing to do. I think everyone should do it. Certainly, if you're doing it when sending me something, I will appreciate that. I mean, unbelievably, right? The same thing, because that's how I operate, I will put, please review now and get back to me. Please respond to me now. So it's setting those expectations right in the subject line. Clients ask for that too. The other thing I tend to do in emails is we get it, right? There are complicated issues we deal with. And I'm asking you to do research. You're a new attorney. You're very good at doing research. You've you know done these research memos in law school and you're a summer and they're complicated issues. And you're like, but dude, you just told me you don't like single-spaced long emails. How am I supposed to get this info to you? You're driving me crazy. You told me, get me all this info. Then you said, don't make it long. Don't put single-spaced stuff. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. What I do and I do this you know, often in my advice capacity to clients. And I say, dear client, as you know, we looked into this issue. In summary, the key points are bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Then I say, there is a lot of nuance to this, however, and our full analysis is below my signature block, which includes a description of the cases and whatever it may be. You know, I do it just like the intro of a brief or something, right? I send, my emails always begin with, here's the general answer. Here are the key points. Let's discuss. Larry, see below for the really big single space explanation that some clients want to see, some don't. It's important to send on. Absolutely. And so I know we're almost at time. I think we've done a pretty good job at scratching the surface. This conversation is by no means the end-all be-all, but I hope it provides some helpful tips and some things that people can think about. I will end this, though, the way I end a lot of the, or most of the episodes of the past in the practice that aren't a special episode with our kind of takeaway advice. So I think my general takeaway for a new first-year associate, and then Larry, we're going to, I'm going to ask you yours and we're going to close this out. But my general advice is to understand you have a lot of ramping up to do. It simply takes time to become a lawyer. It's, I mean, truly, I think it takes the better part of a decade to feel as though you really have a sense of what's going on. And that first year is a tremendous ramp up. So be gentle with yourself. Be compassionate with yourself. Give yourself a little bit of grace. But also, if you treat people the way that you know, you'd want to be treated, which I know is some golden rule kind of stuff, but from what Larry and I have been talking about, deploy some empathy, write things, research things, do things in the way that it would be helpful if you were in their position, that tends to go a long way. Larry, what's your kind of general summary advice to that new associate at Foley or at another large law firm? So first of all, no surprise, I agree with you and what you just said, right? And I will say those are qualities that will develop that notion of empathy we need to be giving you the newer associates and the mid-level associates we need to be giving you that same empathy it's on us as well it's a two-way street but you start out thinking that way as you go through the ranks you're going to be that senior counsel and that partner that everyone loves working with because you're doing the same thing you did when you were beginning associate number two Alexis, the imposter syndrome is common amongst most of us, our type A, you know, high achievers. It never goes away. But just know that we're all in this together and this is common. You know, it is not unusual to feel overwhelmed and there's so much. And that's why I talk about a lot of the low-hanging fruit and general expectations. There's nothing we talked about today that had to do with substantive law. We didn't talk about any doctrine or theory that these are all things that everyone can do to succeed. Now, my takeaway is communication. And what do I mean? It's the corollary of communication. As I'm say. We talked about communicating and being empathetic and telling people where you are and what your availability is. Ask 
questions to everyone. If there's one takeaway and one thing that I should have done more when I was beginning, this is not a do-it-yourself profession. People ask me why I like working at a big law firm because I like having like thousand colleagues who are lawyers and a few thousand colleagues who are not lawyers. I like being able to talk to people. I like being able to schmooze and talk about cases and you know figure out things. But in addition to that, that's what we're here for. That's why we're a large firm. So if you don't know something, there are literally, I mean, and I, we've given examples, right, of figuring out who's worked with me before, right, and going to your peers. Sometimes it's a matter of going to peers and just saying, hey, have you dealt with this before? Sometimes it's a matter, and I do this to this day, the people who were my good friends starting out as beginning an associate, several are still here with the firm. We send each other our stuff, and we don't bill for it, but I say, can you give me a reality check and make sure that what I wrote here doesn't sound crazy? You do that. That's why we have each other. You ask. And if there are things you don't know, and I put it out there, if you don't know who to ask, you can call me, right? I am on this podcast. This will go out there. I, hopefully, I have a long and many decade career ahead of me that corresponds with yours, and you can find me. You can ask me. And if there's one thing I've been good at, it's figuring out in general who knows what and who can get you what answer. So there's never anything, anything where you should feel like you should have to handle a question alone because you never do. And once you realize you have the power of all of us, it's not easy, but it's not as hard. Larry, that's perfect. I love that this is not a do-it-yourself profession. Also, I know our under our new strategic plan, it's all about one firm. I think you nicely tied that in, so good job there. And once again, Larry, I will just thank you for your time, for allowing me to drag you on the show the third time, and we'll see what excuse I find to get you on again, see if we can make it a fourth time at some point. But with that, we'll end. And I will just say to the listeners, please take Larry up on his offer, and also please feel free to reach out to me. But generally, if you're at Foley & Lardner, I think most large firms, part of just navigating early in your career is finding support with others. And I hope you enjoyed our show today. And Larry, thank you for being on the podcast again. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice 